If you have a Bible with you this morning, I'd ask that you open it to John chapter 21. We'll soon be reading from the first 14 verses. If you don't have a Bible with you this morning, the black ESV Bible in the seats in front of you or the pew in front of you, uh, can, you can find John 21 on page 907 of that Bible. The name Paul Harvey is a name that some of you will recognize, some of you will not. I grew up listening to Paul Harvey as he uh, went over the radio in my grandfather's house. Uh, he was famous for something that he called and the rest of the story. He would give a fairly basic story without much punch or pizzazz to it, uh, and he would pause and then he would say, but there's more, there's the rest of the story. Uh, it was a way of, of kind of having a story that concludes, but then adding interesting and, and uh, other details that, that made the story more than what it was originally. We might wonder if that's precisely what we have in the book of John this morning. John seems to have come to a close. Verses 30 and 31 of chapter 20 seem to round off the entirety of the book, if not the entirety of chapter 20, very well. He says, we've got these resurrection appearances. I have recorded some of them for you. I've recorded these for you so that you would believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and believing you may have life in his name. This sums up the book. It sums up the whole purpose of giving resurrection appearances. It's a fitting conclusion. You would expect then that we would be able to close John and say we are done with him now, are done with at least the gospel. Scholars seem puzzled by chapter 21, as we might be. They think that somehow an editor got a hold of John and slapped chapter 21 on the end of it. After all, what John 21 basically is, is another resurrection appearance tacked on to ones that John has already given us and said that there's already a purpose accomplished from the ones that we've given to you. Obviously, we don't think that an editor just slapped this on to the end. At no point in time do we have any manuscripts that have John 20 as the full stop ending of the Gospel of John. 21 is always there. The question becomes, what does John mean for this chapter for us? Why give us, coming off of verses 30 and 31 of chapter 20, another chapter, another resurrection appearance, when we've already got three of them or four of them, depending on how you want to read it. I think that there is much here for us. So let us see what we can find out by reading and go to John 21 and read the first 14 verses of this important chapter. John 21, beginning in verse 1. After this, Jesus revealed himself again to the disciples by the Sea of Tiberias. And he revealed himself in this way. Simon Peter, Thomas, called the twin, Nathaniel of Cana in Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, and two others of his disciples were together. Simon Peter said to them, I am going fishing. And they said to him, We will go with you. They went out and got into the boat, but that night they caught nothing. Just as day was breaking, Jesus stood on the shore, yet the disciples did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to them, Children, do you have any fish? They answered him, No. He said to them, Cast the net on the right side of the boat, and you will find some. So they cast it. And now they were not able to haul it in because of the great quantity of fish. That disciple whom Jesus loved therefore said to Peter, It is the Lord. When Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put on his outer garment, for he was stripped for work, and threw himself into the sea. The other disciples came into the boat, dragging, came in the boat, dragging the net full of fish. For they were not far off from land, but about a hundred yards off. When they got out on land, they saw a charcoal fire in place with fish laid out on it and bread. And Jesus said to them, 
Bring some of the fish that you have just caught. So Simon Peter went aboard and hauled the net ashore, full of large fish, 153 of them. And although there were so many, the net was not torn. Jesus said to them, come and have breakfast. Now none of the disciples dared ask him, who are you? For they knew that it was the Lord. Jesus came and took the bread and gave it to them, and so also with the fish. This was now the third time that Jesus was revealed to the disciples after he was raised from the dead. This is the inerrant, infallible, and glorious word of our God. John provides for us another resurrection appearance, and this one seems fairly straightforward. The disciples are on the Sea of Tiberias. They have gone back north into Galilee, and they are sitting around, and Peter says, hey, I'm going to go fishing. And it's well reported that fishing at night on the Sea of Tiberias is the thing that you do. Uh, I, don't, I don't fish hardly ever. My family has started fishing some this fall. We caught some fish that were this big. I don't know why the, the left hand didn't need to be up there. And, and actually, it was Lucy who caught that, that fish, and we were very happy. We've been out three times, and, and we've caught three inches worth of fish. So uh, we were, I, even, even if that's the case, we are still more successful than these professional fishermen at night. So, uh, but they didn't catch anything at night. Uh, apparently, this is the time to go out on the Sea of Tiberias is at night, but they didn't catch anything. And during the morning light, they're coming near to the shore, And there's a man standing on the shore. Clearly, the disciples don't know who this person is. We know that it's Jesus. The disciples don't. And he calls out to them, do you have any fish? They respond very curtly, I'm sure, after an entire night of not catching anything, no. And so he says, hey, cast off on the right-hand side. Now, why they follow that advice, if not just to show the local yokel that he doesn't know anything about fishing and that they've been trying at this all night and there's nothing there just to spite him, they said, okay, well, fine, we'll cast off on the right-hand side. And so many fish jump in that net that they can't haul it on to the boat. John recognizes then the Lord. Peter then does what Peter always does. John thinks, Peter acts, he ties his garment back around him, he was naked, and he jumps into the water and and seeks out Jesus. When they get there, Jesus is cooking fish. He's got bread for them, passes it out to them. They count the fish, and John says, hey, this is the third time that this has happened. What exactly are we supposed to make out of this? Frankly, it's a difficult passage. Given what we've already talked about, how John 20 has come to a completion and ended, what are we to make out of this? I think that there is a great deal of symbolism here. I think that there's a great deal of symbolism here because, well, the church has always read it that way, but also because there's a very nice parallel with how the disciples began their discipleship with Jesus and how John, I think, supports the other gospels and what he is trying to say. Augustine was probably the most famous interpreter of this passage. We'll get back to him in a couple of minutes. I think that his strategy is the best in understanding that what Jesus is doing here is showing us something about the church. He's showing us something about the nature of who the church is and how they are to handle themselves. I don't agree with all of his details, but I do agree with that. One of the reasons why I think this occurs where it does, after verses 30 and 31 of chapter 20, is because 30 and 31 seem to be the beginning of things. The whole point of 30 and 31 is to say, I've given you what I've given you so that you would believe. The question then has to become, so now what? Now what do we do? 
The disciples have been commissioned by Jesus. Jesus breathed on them. He said, you are going to be sent out even as the Father sent me, so I send you. He said, you are to love one another. He said, you are going to receive the Holy Spirit. He promises the Holy Spirit to them. Even given all that, I don't think it's probably fairly clear for the disciples or the apostles what they're supposed to do. I don't think that they've got a full grasp on what they're supposed to do. As we are to believe the gospel, we are to believe that Jesus Christ died for our sins, that each and every one of us was sinful before him, as we have prayed and spoken about already this morning, that we are, we are filthy before him. Every action that we take is short of the glory of God. And that because Jesus died for us, he has paid the price and the penalty for that so that those who believe in him might have everlasting life. That indeed is true for every single person in here this morning. Well, once you believe that, the question is, what do you do? Why are you here? And I think, I think that this picture is meant to help us understand it. Luke records this in the fifth chapter of his gospel, giving us the signal of how the disciples start their ministry with Jesus at the very beginning of what he does. Jesus has met Simon Peter, and he's actually cast off of the shore with Simon Peter so that he can stand in the boat and preach to the people on shore. This is after Peter has been out all night fishing with John and James, the sons of Zebedee. Luke chapter 5 verse 4 reads this way. And when he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, Put out into the deep and let down your nets for a catch. And Simon answered, Master, we have toiled all night and took nothing. Sounds familiar. But at your word, I will let down the nets. And when they had done this, they enclosed a large number of fish, and their nets were breaking. They signaled to their partners in the other boat to come and help them. And they came and filled both the boats so that they began to sink. When Simon Peter saw it, he fell down at Jesus' knees, saying, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. For he and all who were with him were astonished at the catch of fish they had taken. And so also were James and John, the sons of Zebedee, who were partners with Simon. And Jesus said to Simon, Do not be afraid. From now on, you will be catching men. This is how they begin their ministry with Jesus. Jesus brings them exactly back to this point to remind them the point of your existence now is to do precisely this. You are to put away your fishing, Peter, and you are to catch men. This is a call for the whole of the church. And so today, let us think through what exactly is the relationship between Jesus and the church and how the church fulfills its mission and its calling through the work of Jesus. First, we should be reminded that the church needs the work of Christ. The church needs the work of Christ. Peter and others leave at night. It might have been the best time to go fishing on the Sea of Tiberias, but we would also note that anytime things happen at night in the Gospel of John, it implies that there's a sense of misunderstanding. It means that Jesus isn't actually there. It's not for nothing that they don't see Jesus until the break of dawn. There is now light where Jesus is. They have gone out in misunderstanding and think that they are going to catch fish but they do nothing until Jesus shows up. They accomplish none of their goals. They have no benefit from all of the labor and all of the work that they have put in absent the work of Jesus Christ. Psalm 127 says, Unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. This is not just the work of Jesus on the cross, but his continual work in our lives. 
If we do the work that he has sent us to do, we must be continually resting on his power and his care over us. And it's difficult to be in this habit. It's easy to get into the thinking of the world and the thinking of so many churches that what we do is bring people into the kingdom by appearances, by nice-sounding words, by nice music, by nice buildings. It's easy to get lost in the idea that it's programs that are going to win people to the Lord. If we can have enough programs, then we can get people in, and if we can get them in, then we can win them to the Lord. Anytime the church, whether it is simply by the kindness of their people, or the sound of their music, or the glory of their buildings, or the niceness of their programs, thinks that they can build the kingdom of God, they are fooling themselves. Plenty of churches draw a crowd, but absent the work of Jesus Christ, none of them saves a soul. It is the work of Christ that brings in the haul of fish. Once Jesus comes onto the scene, the same efforts produce an incredible haul of fish. It's a miracle, pure and simple. Whether Jesus knew those fish were there, whether he was the one who guided and directed them there, whether it was both of them, it was a miracle that they caught the fish they did, and it is a work of Christ. Anyone who comes to know the Lord through the work of the church, it is a work of Christ. And outside of Christ working in their lives, there is nothing for the church to do. We are, as Paul would say somewhere else, clanging gongs and banging cymbals. Now that was without love, but that love is also without Christ. You'll notice that the same work is done. These are fishermen. They're professional fishermen. Before they left for the ministry, they know how to fish. The same mannerisms, the same efforts, the same men achieved radically different outcomes when Jesus is there versus when he is not there. So it is with the church. No matter how nice it looks, no matter how large the congregation might grow, No matter how beautiful the exterior might be, we do nothing without Christ working miracles in the lives of other people. And we do well to remember that. The church needs the work of Christ. But secondly, the church recognizes the work of Christ. John's exclamation here is really interesting. There's no reason to think that he recognized the Lord on the shore. There's a couple of reasons why. One, he says first that he didn't, they didn't recognize Jesus was on the shore. His disciples did not know that it was Jesus. Now, you might be thinking, well, after they catch the fish, maybe he looks up and he sees Jesus in the face. But there's this ongoing unrecognition of Jesus in the resurrection that even when the disciples are there, John has this very interesting bit at the end. None of them say, who are you? because they all knew it was Jesus. That is, I think, Jesus in his resurrection, again, somehow tied to his pre-resurrection body. He has wounds in his hands. He has wound in his side. It is his pre-resurrection body, but it's so changed that they don't know who they're looking at. They know it's Jesus, but he doesn't quite look like Jesus. And I think even if John was able to look up far away at the shore and see this man, He wouldn't have known it was Jesus. How did he all of a sudden know it's Christ? How did he know that this was the Lord? Again, if you read Luke 5, you understand how he knew it. This is familiar, he says. I remember this happening to us before. I remember having a catch that we couldn't haul in. The one who gave us that catch is Jesus. John recognizes Jesus not because he sees him, but because he knows the way his Lord works. Immediately, it makes sense to John. The Lord is here. That is the Lord. 
Like the apostles, friends, you are never going to get to see the face of the Lord until he returns. And the work that you do is going to be outside of his appearing before you. But, like John, we ought to be able to see the work for what it is. It is the work of Christ and recognize when the Lord is doing his work among us. This is a theme in the Gospel of John. Time and time again, people don't like the things that Jesus says. And what does he always point them to? Look at my work. John 14, 11, as he talks to his disciples, he says, believe me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me, or else believe on account of the works themselves. He says the same thing in John chapter 5. In John 10, he says it twice. He's talking to the Pharisees and the Sadducees who do not believe in him. He's talking to the Jews who do not believe in him. And he says, I told you and you don't believe. The works that I do in my Father's name bear witness about me, but you do not believe because you are not among my sheep. Later on in that same chapter, verses 37 and 38, if I am not doing the works of my Father, then do not believe me. But if I do them, even though you do not believe me, believe the works that you may know and understand that the Father is in me and I am in the Father. It is the works that give Jesus away. It's always been the works that gave him away. It is the work that he does. The Old Testament doesn't leave a facial imprint of what Jesus ought to look like so that when he shows up, he can be like, oh yeah, you're Jesus. I can see that. Now you know Jesus by how he works, and the same is true today. Friends, we ought to see Jesus Christ in the works that he does. We ought to see it in the work that he does in one another. We ought to be so involved in one another's lives that we know the growth that is happening in our neighbors and our friends in the gospel of Jesus Christ. We ought to be able to see it in our own lives as we mature, whether that's because other people are very kindly pointing it out to us that we've matured in these places, or whether we simply notice it over the course of years and decades. And what's more, the understanding that Jesus has worked in us ought to cause us to do the very thing that Peter does, rush to the Lord. Peter, with pure abandon, leaves everything behind and rushes to the Lord. This sort of Seeing the work of God in our lives and in others' lives leads us to praise and worship him. It leads us to a strong desire to be in his presence. So if, friend, you don't have that strong desire, being in this church, there's a couple of things that might be wrong. Either you don't know the work that God is doing in your brothers and sisters. He's not doing work in your brothers and sisters. Or you see it and you're not having the right application of seeing that work. It is to praise God and it should draw you near to him. The church needs and ought to recognize the work of Christ. Thirdly, the church is filled by the work of Christ. The fish that are brought in here is nothing but the hall of the nations. Matthew 13, Jesus gives a parable that sounds, again, a lot like the symbolism that John is portraying here. Jesus says there, again, the kingdom is like a net that was thrown into the sea and gathered fish of every kind. This is what the kingdom of God is like. It is like a great haul of fish. Now, the people, the disciples and the apostles bringing in this great haul of fish, we are to understand that this haul of fish is nothing but the gospel going out. They are to be fishers of men and they are to catch the nations. They are to catch a multitude from every tribe, tongue, nation, and language. They are to catch 153 of them, apparently. We have that exact and precise number, which is an interesting bit. I've talked to you before and told you before that details are here for a reason. 
We need to inspect those details. We need to see those details are very rarely written down simply to give us information. Augustine looks at this. He says, ah, I got it. 153. You see, we know that the law is dead on its own, but it's only the law working in the spirit that can truly make us alive. The law is best symbolized by the number 10. After all, there are 10 commandments that summarize the entirety of the law. That's the Decalogue. The spirit, which makes the law come alive, is perfect and holy. It's based off of a pattern of seven, whether it is the the work of of holiness in providing seven days of the week or the seven spirits in the the book of of John's Revelation. So the Holy Spirit is the number seven. And 17, well, if you add the numbers one plus two plus three plus four plus five plus six plus seven all the way up to 17, you know what you get? 153. And the, the best part about all of that is that he doesn't leave it up to you to just take his word that he's adding it correctly. He literally, in his commentary, adds it for you. He says, if you add one to two, you get three. If you add three and four to three, you get ten. If you add five and seven, all the way up to 17. Like, ta-da, 153. I, I'm on board with a lot of Augustinian stuff. That is a bridge too far, man. I, I, if you're going to take details and make something out of them, there's got to be a reason why you do it. This just kind of sits there. I would love to think that John has a reason for it, and part of me wants to think that that reason is just so that he can sit up in heaven and sort of chuckle at at everything that's going on when people try and figure out why 153. He's like, listen, I lay lay symbolism everywhere. It's all over my my book of Revelation. It's all over the Gospel of John. Symbolism's everywhere. I'm just going to drop this down there just so that they know and watch them struggle with it. That's my best explanation. It's really, really a good one. I imagine that this number came about because of a pretty normal thing. It's a huge haul. Nathaniel looks at it and he says, that's 200 fish easy. And James says, there's no more than 120 there. And they're like, let's count, let's count. And they count, they get to 153. And John records 153. Now, I do think that the exact number does have a meaning. Elsewhere, when we talk about the incoming nations, John records that as being a number almost uncountable. In Revelation chapter 7, John says this, After this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number, from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. He says there that there's a number that no one can number, but here that number is definite. You might not be able to count the number of people in heaven, but God knows them by name. They are numbered. They're his. He has them written in a book. They are his people that he will call from every tribe, tongue, nation, and language. And if John gives us 153 fish here, it's not because of some weird counting system. It's not because someone's name adds up to be the number 153. It is solely because he is saying there's a definiteness to it. And he goes through the point to make sure that you know the nets don't break. So great was the catch that he, he has to make this sort of exclamation. By the way, the nets weren't breaking. Now, that partly throws us back to Luke, but the other thing it does is make it very clear. None of the fish were lost. Not one gets out. Those whom God calls, he elects. Those whom he elects, he brings the gospel to. Once they hear the gospel, they believe the gospel. God calls his people and his people will come. And that comes through the work of Christ, through the work of the church. 
Now, at some point in time, we do reach the end of the metaphor, right? Because those fish were likely not trying to get up on shore. They were trying to get away. They kind of wish there was a hole in the net, and eventually those fish are going to get eaten, and the metaphor takes a pretty clear turn. So the metaphor ends at some point in time, but this is the point. The nations will come in. God will have a great hall of people who will know him and will call him by name, who will do exactly what John has said should happen earlier in the book. They will believe in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and they will have eternal life. He will bring them to shore. The church is filled by the work of Christ. But fourthly, we need to understand also that the church does the work of Christ. There's something very kind that Christ mentions here in just one word in verse 10. He says to them, bring some of the fish that you have just caught. Now that's using the word catch real lightly. They did almost nothing. They literally threw the net out the other side, and the only reason they caught anything was because Jesus was there doing it. But nevertheless, Jesus recognizes that while he was the one who provided the fish for them, he was the one who told them where to go, he was the one who directed and orchestrated the whole thing, it was still the work of the apostles that got it done. It is the work of the church that does the work of Christ. We have to be able to balance these things out. He accomplishes the work of bringing in the fish through the toil of the men on that boat. It's their work, it's their fish that they have caught. And he accomplishes the work of bringing in his people through the toil of men and women who take the gospel to the world. It is their labor. Don't ever forget that your labor matters. It matters. You are important to the work of the gospel of Christ because Christ has called you to that work. And there are plenty of people, I think, who feign humility here. Oh, but I'm so small. I'm so little. What can I do? Yeah, you're small. You're little. But there's two things that you have to know. Christ has called you to this work. If you are in the church, he's called you to it. And it is demeaning to his power to think that he can't use you. The glory of Christ is not seen in bringing people of his own power. It is using faulty instruments like you to do the work that he does. It's like a brain surgeon using a crescent wrench. He's got to be a real good surgeon. And Jesus uses us As weak and as feeble as we are, he uses us to bring the nations to him. Don't feign humility. Do the work that Christ has called you to do. Take the gospel to the nations. It's disobedient to the very call that Christ has put on your life, and it stands in disbelief of his power to not work to those ends whether that is doing your day job so that you can fund missions, whether that is doing your day job so you can fund the ministries of this church, whether it is actually engaging in ministry while you're doing the work that you do, do the work that Christ has left for you. Indeed, this is the whole purpose here. Christ commissions them to go into the world even as the Father sent him into the world. His great power is seen by using us to accomplish his ends. Cast the net in and see what kind of difference you can make. Do the work of Christ. And fifth, the church is fed by the work of Christ. The church is fed by the work of Christ. Although they are bringing in this great haul of fish, and even though Jesus has asked them if they have any fish, it seems like Jesus is asking that for himself. You 
When you first read it, you think he's asking, do you have any fish? Because this stranger on the shore wants to have some of their fish, but that's not why he's asking, because he's already got the charcoal fire going. He's already got fish there, and he's already got bread there. He's asking so that he might provide for them. Now, if this whole thing sounds familiar, it ought to be. Back in John chapter 6, we have the record of Jesus feeding the 5,000. He feeds those 5,000 with very small amounts of both fish and bread, the very same things he has here. And that happens on the Sea of Tiberias, just as this happens on the Sea of Tiberias. Now, nowhere in the recorded history of the church, or really here, is the idea of the Lord's Supper directly tied to this provision of fish. It's kind of a weird thing. But given the symbolism in John chapter 6, which is thick with the idea of communion or the Lord's Supper and the provision of his body being eaten by his believers, we are right here to think that this is a picture of the nourishment that Jesus gives to his church. There he feeds the 5,000. Five loaves, little dinner roll-sized loaves, and two fish. He multiplies them to feed 5,000 men and so many more women and children. And so now he feeds even his church on the shore after their work. They haven't had anything to eat all night. They are tired. And here is Christ feeding them and giving them what they need. At the end of the feeding of the 5,000, 12 baskets are filled up with the leftovers, certainly symbolizing the 12 tribes of Israel, and even more so now, the 12 apostles themselves. Jesus, at the end of John chapter 6, has to run because they are trying to make him king, but already he is king here. They don't have to make him anything. They recognize him as king. They recognize him as Lord but they are fed by him. They are nourished by him. It's not just John chapter 6 either. John chapter 4 makes an appearance here as well. What happens in John chapter 4? Jesus, on his way back to Jerusalem, passes through Samaria. And in passing through Samaria, his disciples go into a town while he stays out by the well and talks to the woman at the well. By the time the disciples come back, the woman is just leaving And they say, hey, do you have any food? And Jesus said to them, I have food to eat that you don't know about. So the disciples said to one another, has anyone brought him something to eat? And Jesus said to them, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. Here, Christ is giving them that food. You accomplish my work and I will feed you. And I don't mean that as like a cause and effect thing. He's saying, labor for it, work for it, and I will supply every need you have. When you come to the shore for rest, it will be provided for you. If the fish in the net symbolize the great catch of the nations through evangelism, the provision of food symbolizes the contentment and the nourishment of doing the very will of God that we might be just as Jesus is, fed and nourished by the word fed and nourished by Christ himself. In both cases, Jesus satisfies the hunger of his people. He provides them with food, literal, physical food. They take the fish, they take the loaves, and they are nourished by it. And friend, he does this for you daily. When you sit down and you eat your vegetables and you eat your meat and you eat your, well, all of your leftover holiday candy, Christ has provided that for you, not just little Debbie. 
He has given it to you. He is the one who made the crops grow. He is the one who keeps the locusts at bay. He is the one who allows the trucks to bring them to you. He is the one who provides them for you. All of the technology that we have that makes all of that more efficient doesn't in any way undo the fact that it is a provision of God that allows it to come to you. He provides you and nourishes you physically, but he also does so spiritually. He strengthens us for the work ahead. He makes us hunger to do the will of God, and he nourishes and fulfills us spiritually. This is especially timely as we come soon to the Lord's table. Friends, as we talk about the work of Christ, we realize that there is much, much work left to do. There are some 7,400, 7,400 unreached people groups in the world. Those are people groups who without a sustained assistance from outside will never be reached with the gospel. In other words, the gospel has to come to them. The gospel doesn't have to come to people in Bay City. The gospel is here. The gospel has to go to them. That's over 40% of the world. Some two, three, excuse me, 0.23 billion people. They have no access to the gospel. They can't say, I wonder what this Christianity thing is about and go and buy a Bible or go to the neighborhood church and listen to somebody preach to them the gospel of Jesus Christ. They can't ask a coworker if they know a Christian. They've never heard the name of Jesus Christ. They have no access to the gospel. Their sins oppress them. The devil holds them down and darkness overcomes them continuously. There is no light. Let us reach them with the gospel, even as it has come to us. Let this work be nourishment to us. Let it fill as food for our souls. And as we celebrate what the Lord has done for us, all the more let us look forward to the day when we will celebrate with many who even in this hour have never heard the name of Jesus Christ. That through the work of the church empowered by Jesus, worked through by Jesus, aided and helped and guided and directed in every way by Jesus, might take the gospel to the nation so that this celebration might be a celebration for all. May this time of celebration of the death of our Lord and the forgiveness of our sins so fill us that we will spend our days gladly working, doing the will of God for his glory and for our good. Let us pray. Father, may your name be honored above all the rest. And may your will be done here on earth as it is in heaven. Even today as we get our daily bread, both physically and spiritually, we know that many in this world get neither. Give us the desires and the resources to see both of these problems remedied. That your gospel may go forth into the world, that your people might be brought safely to the shores of heaven. We ask for this in the incomparable name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen.